Hello and welcome to China Dispatches, a European Chamber podcast that shares on-the-ground insights from European business leaders and experts on doing business in China. I'm your host, Esther Cañada Mela. After nearly three years, the European Chamber's EU tour took place in person from 9th to 13th January. During the EU tour, our delegates presented the Chamber's key messaging and its recent reports to key European stakeholders, including the European Commission, the Council, the Parliament, as well as industry and business associations. During the five-day tour in Brussels, the delegation participated in a total of 48 meetings and events. 25 of them were with high-level officials. In today's episode of China Dispatches, we will hear about the experiences of some of the delegates that participated in the tour, as well as some of the key outcomes. I'd like to welcome our guest speakers, Jörg Wutke, President of the European Chamber, and Vice Presidents Jens Eskelund, Massimo Bagnasco, and Carlo D'Andrea. Thank you very much for joining. Now, before we start to talk about this year's EU tour, I think that we should first provide some background. What is the EU tour and why does the European Chamber organize it? Well, Esther, I'm the fossil among all of us here. I must say it's a logistical nightmare and a spin and messaging bonanza. I've been doing this uh, on and off uh, since 2007. And I must say that the European Chamber is unique globally in access to uh, top leaders uh, in the European field, uh, be it Parliament, be it Council, be it the Commission and others. It was actually derived uh, before my time uh, by the German Chamber, which we did uh, with a kind of uh, Berlin visit uh, and touring uh, the cities uh, where we felt it is important. And at that time, the former president Ernst Behrens rolled this out for Brussels, and it has been stable. It has been clearly the highlight of the year, of course, interrupted in 2021 and 2022. So the last trip uh, was in January 2020, and now it was sort of coming back uh, in spectacular circumstances because like in January 2020, China had huge COVID problems and uh, Brussels was back to normal and we had a similar situation right away now. So it is established, actually much needed, and the European interlocutors are always super keen in order to meet this delegation. Yes, uh, indeed, we have been fortunate to have this level of access. And as you mentioned, our last in-person EU tour was in February 2020, which was, to say the least, a complicated time. As we came back in January 2023, it was also interesting times, both in China and in Europe. In terms of the overall understanding and attitude of EU officials towards China and the business environment, what is different from 2020? Well, I mean, these uh, three years, we had incredible access to top uh, European leaders. We did it online. We met uh, the Council President Michel. Uh, we met uh, everybody that matters. Uh, but, you know, online is not the same like offline body language uh, between doors. Uh, and I guess uh, the same applies uh, to the Chinese and European leaders. These three years have in many ways distorted the perception of the partners. It clearly has uh, caused a lot of misunderstandings. And that's why I think it is really important to overcome this lack of trust and understanding by actually now making the effort 
for Europeans to come over here and for Chinese interlocutors to reconnect again with the European uh, counterparts. We had this many times that even people in the working level had no clue who their partners are to discuss climate change, agriculture, and other parts. So in a way, uh, three years was way too long. Online doesn't swing the needle. Now is the time to visit each other. Yeah, if I may just uh, add to that, I think another thing that uh, came through was, it seems that almost when you look across all the meetings that we had, that the commission appears more aligned. It's Chinese view. It was very much the same positions that were expressed. And the position that was articulated a few years ago about the relationship with China being a partnership, China being a competitor and also systemic rival, that is still current in Brussels today. I think another takeaway point is that Europe is developing an independent approach, which is not necessarily completely identical with that position of that other country on the other side of the Atlantic. So that would be very interesting to see also how that develops. Indeed, it will. We had 20 delegates in our delegation for this EU tour, and each of them had a wealth of sectoral expertise and industry background that combined probably amounted to decades of expertise. But can you share some of the core messaging that we as a delegation wanted to convey to our Brussels counterparts? Well, I mean, the whole tour, and I remember 2007, at least the first time I joined, was all about the position paper. Position paper came out in September and we sort of popped up in Brussels in fall of that same year. This time it was slightly different. So the position paper still was uh, driving the show. After all, uh, we had the label of ideology trumps the economy, which was proven again by the ditching of the zero tolerance policy. And we had a lot of brain power with this delegation in various fields. To me, it is always the most enlightening thing to listen to my colleagues for one week. At the end, you really can do their part as well. The message we had, of course, was about China opening up because 967 cases in the position paper make a case that China is a large economy but a very small accessible market. And we had to counter the notion that China actually should be decoupled because we're overinvested. I think the whole point the European Chamber was trying to do was to indicate how little our share of exports are into the Chinese economy. Likewise, uh, how much uh, we are benefiting from China as a business partner in imports, but also in investment. And then following up on my question, we had representatives from MNCs in our EU tour, but we also have today two vice presidents that have been flag bearers for European small businesses, Massimo and Carlo. So for you both, I have a question. What were some of the pain points for SMEs that you raised in your meetings with our EU counterparts? Massimo? The position paper finding and the work done by the SME forum was the core point of our messages. The matter related to the market assets, which are even more relevant for the small medium enterprises because they don't have a large team with government affairs managers who can manage to deal with the local authorities is an issue. Of course, uh, they were also very impacted by the uh, financial situation uh, that COVID created, which was tougher and tougher for our members locally. But uh, it was also important to remark how the Small Medium Enterprise Center, which is an entity 
funded by the EU Commission, play an important role in order to support the member, the SME who are already in China, as well as to properly inform those one who are just interested to learn more about the Chinese market. As a matter of fact, nowadays the Chinese authority has more and more interest to chase also our small medium enterprise. They are aware that the big multinational companies are already in China. They are keen to attract new foreign investment. And so they want to learn also from us, from the chamber experience, what could be done in order to be more attractive and more supportive to the small medium enterprise. And all this message was the main message that we brought back to the Commission, to the Council and to the parliamentarian. Thanks, Massimo. Indeed, as a person that is uh, supporting the implementation of the USME Center, I could not agree more. And particularly now that China is uh, reopening, it will be more important than ever for EU-based SMEs to have the right access to information and support that the USME Center can provide. Carlo. Definitely the EU tour is one of the most important exercises, not only for uh, the members, but the delegates. The message that we said is the small medium enterprise are among the companies that suffer the most in, in China. Of course, depend on different sectors because one of the main issues is the lack to access of finance, the problem that they had over the travel ban and the travel restriction, still continue IPR infringement that it was always in our list of uh, deliverable. And we also raised the issue that the investment, as Massimo was pointedly out rightly before, from Euro into China, especially from the small medium enterprises, is shrinking. Another point that I want to mention is that the European community in China is still there, is shrinking. We have many people. We can stay all together in the bird nest in Beijing, around 60,000 people, but we still matter on percentage of taxes, on percentage of millions of people from China that working for European companies. And I always remember that it's important to say that in China, it, doing business became more complicated and more politicized. So for small, medium enterprise, they need to make homework and they use Mass Center definitely is a good instrument. Absolutely. It is important to know whether China is the right market for you or not as a European SME because there is a lot to lose. I think that nobody was surprised to hear in Brussels that trust had been eroded in the past three years, mostly because of the management of COVID-19. One thing that we were glad to hear, though, was that at least for most of our EU interlocutors, engagement was still on the table. York, what are some of the more encouraging messages our delegation received from EU authorities? 
Well, I guess the most overwhelming sense that we got was that the whole of Brussels was absolutely keen to meet us, listen to us. Uh, there was no China bashing going on. China was not projected as toxic partner, but it was all about curiosity. How do we deal with a partner, as Jens pointed out, as a competitor, but also partner and a systemic rival? The messages that we got there is decoupling is not in the cards. Uh, the new buzzword in Brussels is de-risking. And uh, clearly, we have outlined uh, areas of cooperation. I mean, just keep in mind that weeks before we popped up in Brussels, there was a very successful biodiversity summit in Montreal, where in particular the Chinese and the European delegation worked hand in hand in order to get a certain deal over the finishing line. So in a way, there are many cases where we can actually cooperate. And obviously, the other message we got is, you know, on Taiwan, what you're going to do there, I think it was vital that this delegation at this period of time showed up there in order to bring a little whiff of fresh air and good information to the decision makers. Uh, but again, the year is going to be long and I hope we engage further. Jens. I would perhaps phrase it a little bit stronger than our president just did in terms of uh, messaging on decoupling. The word that was used repeatedly actually was that decoupling is a fantasy. It's not going to happen. The interdependencies are so deep and so pervasive that for both China and Europe, this is simply not a feasible way forward. It's about looking at what are the real strategic vulnerabilities that we have in Europe. The Commission made a study themselves a year ago identifying 6% of imports as being strategically important. Half of that, i.e. 3%, are originating in China. It's not about you know finding other sources for these 3%. It's about reducing vulnerability. So in total, we are talking about, I don't know, 1%? perhaps even less of total imports into Europe that's in scope of a de-risking exercise. So it's important that we continuously keep perspective and do not try to blow this out of proportion. It's important. Europe needs to develop its autonomy also from a supply chain and sourcing perspective. But also, let's be realistic. And let's also keep in mind that it's not just a vulnerability that Europe has. Indeed, China is exporting more than three times as many goods to Europe than Europe is exporting to China. Imports into China is an immense creator of jobs for people paying taxes in China and keeping the economy humming in China. And also in terms of transfer of technology, enabling the production of all these products for which there is a demand in Europe and, and elsewhere. So it's really a relationship that goes both ways and we should keep that in mind. Absolutely. Let's do remember that we discussed about SOE, but let's not forget that these, uh, they are the big winners of these three years of COVID. And they stalled the path of reform. And we were trying to push in the direction that this should continue. For example, in order to have uh, a better alignment also in the competition. And what is important is that China in this period created giants like North Ship Building Company with the South Ship Building Company, they merged together and we delivered this uh, business news to them in order to improve the business environment here in China. Indeed, from my personal perspective, I think that it was very striking to hear from our EU counterparts, several of them, about this awareness of the importance of having good expertise on China. So I think it's quite encouraging to see that the European Commission has already rolled out or is in the process of rolling out some EU-funded projects and fellowships aimed at addressing this uh, knowledge gap. 
Moving forward, we have talked about some of the more encouraging things that we heard from Brussels, which views and in some cases even misunderstandings about China and its business environment do you find the most concerning? Well, to me, it was first and foremost that China is a juggernaut. China is going to roll over us. Uh, China is going to be an extrapolated superpower. And most people don't understand that China is really struggling with a lot of headwinds, not just uh, overcoming the COVID crisis, but also real estate crisis, the aging. You have the logistical challenges uh, in many ways, meaning is there enough energy in the summer as well as, of course, you have the challenges of the local finances. So in a way, what we were trying to convey is that China remains a very important uh, partner in Asia, but at the same time, uh, we should be aware that China is also facing all these headwinds. And of course, again, the misunderstanding that we are totally dependent on China, only to some extent, as Jens pointed out, and as the commission proved in a recent paper, but at the same time, you know, if you have uh, 5 million containers going from China to Europe, uh, meaning creating a 60 million jobs, and you have only 1.5 million containers going from Europe to China, uh, I don't know how many jobs are being created there, but certainly not enough. That's also a message we have to convey in China, is China has to be more present and has to create more jobs in Europe in order to be a credible partner. Also on the investment side, again, it's a huge market, particularly for chemicals, cars, and machinery. But the investment uh, stands at $170 billion, the investment put together over the last 20 years. And that pales in comparison to what we do elsewhere. European Union is the largest investor in Taiwan with $45 billion of investment already put into the economy. Again, 45 in comparison to 170 just indicates that China is very interesting, but definitely too closed up in order to be the partner that it could be. And I think that misunderstanding is that we should not pull out of China or disinvest and see China as a juggernaut. Actually, China should be engaged more and we should push China in order to open up more and just basically look into our position paper to get these 967 points reduced, maybe in September, to 500 points. China is now basically uh, asked by the international business community to walk the talk and open up. Let's see if they're willing to do so. Yes. One of the most famous European exports to China is uh, dialectic materialism. And maybe that's one export that China can keep. We don't necessarily need to get back. And what I mean with that is in some quarters, there seems to be almost a mood of fatalism that things will get worse, that it's sort of a matter of thesis and antithesis and that Western values and China will necessarily come to a clash and that it's becoming progressively harder to find pathways to a peaceful coexistence. And I think it's very important that we do not buy into that narrative, but that we insist that we can find ways to work out things together. Yes, it's very difficult. Yes, things have de deteriorated, but we also know that this does not need to be the reality going forward. And business actually has an incredibly important role to play in that respect. Interdependency is a good thing in many ways. That's what creates this you know, constant interchange of people and ideas and getting to know each other. And I think this is something that we really need to latch onto and keep. Let's not forget how good times have been and let's insist that it will be possible also to change course and reach back to some of these things that worked so well for China and the world in past years while acknowledging that it's going to be difficult. Thanks, Jens. I think that balance is the word that you're looking for. 
the European Chamber has been very much involved in the contributions that have been made from the perspective of industry to the Comprehensive Agreement on Investment. From your conversations in Brussels, do you see any signs of life being infused into this otherwise pretty stalled agreement? I think I could answer by saying next question, please, uh, <laughs> by by actually really uh, telling you that the skies and the deepest of all freezers will remain there for quite a while. So don't count on it. Chamber appreciated the effort. Uh, the, we applauded the conclusion. We were dismayed about the sanctions. The sanctions were put in place because of the situation in Xinjiang. That hasn't really changed. And so I don't see any time that we should uh, expect the Kai to come back. But again, uh, final from this uh, previous question and the misunderstanding, I think what happened is that people are overrating risks in Europe concerning China and are undervaluing the opportunities that are still available here. And again, maybe that has to do with the fact that there was no personal uh, witnessing of changes and, and so forth. Again, I appeal to both sides that actually uh, now is the time to reconnect and be less biased about what the opinions are. Uh, charm offensive on both sides doesn't necessarily end by stopping to beat each other up. It has to be more engaging. It really, in these quarrel times of uh, sanctions and the war in Ukraine, Russia, Europe and China have to keep cool heads and see where the opportunities are, but not denying the risks. From my point of view, I believe that uh, as we'll say that we need a more engagement, people-to-people -people relationship. This is a definitely fundamental to regain the trust between the interlocutors and have them the opportunity to develop new activity or at least to continue what was already on the table. This is important because most of the people really started to ask us basic questions about the situation in China. So really the curiosity, the interest of having engagement with China is huge. And so I believe that the upcoming delegation that we will have coming from China to Europe as well as from Europe to China will help on getting closer to each other again. During the meeting that we had uh, in Brussels, we had also the opportunity to meet different representatives uh, of uh, the member of parliament from different parties, from different coalitions, from different state members. And uh, the fact of the existence of the sanction, it will really made complicated to speak which one is the next step on uh, CHI. So this is something that really align all the different party members when they are discussing on China. Thank you, Carlo. Of course, the main goal of the EU tour was to reconnect in person with EU counterparts. But we also had some interesting exchanges with Chinese stakeholders in the EU. We met with newly appointed Chinese ambassador to the EU, Fu Tsong, and with the Chinese Chamber of Commerce in the EU. What were some of the key takeaways from these engagements? I met uh, Ambassador Fu Tsong in December already uh, before he left, and we had an online session with him, so it was our third engagement. 
uh, felt like old friends. Uh, and again, uh, he's a very open-minded, very articulate and eloquent person. But of course, uh, he, he was also reminding us about the shortcomings of Europe. Uh, and uh, of course, he's having a hard start in order to get his voice heard. After all, China didn't have an ambassador in Brussels for one year, which I find puzzling given the importance of the European Union Commission and Parliament and so forth. So in a way, of course, he conveyed uh, Beijing messages uh, very eloquently, and he's a good guy to talk to. But at the same time, I think that we all have to tone down criticism of each other's partners in order to actually get heard and get understood. He's uh, able to do this. His English is absolutely fluent, but it remains to be seen if policy moves uh, beyond uh, wiggling around with a finger in the partner's face. Uh, something also Europeans are very good at, I'm afraid. So in a way, we were back home. But I guess the meeting with the chamber, our brothers and sisters from Brussels, uh, was far more engaging. And I leave this to my colleagues. Jens? I think it would be fair to say that uh, the new Chinese ambassador we have in Brussels, he is he's very outspoken, he's articulate, and he's uh, very uh, direct. And I think the smart money is on. Uh, we will have some headlines popping up now and then, and we will all be looking forward to that. So that was interesting. I'm sure that there are interesting times coming. This year, our EU tour went beyond the confines of Brussels. New York visited Berlin, and Carlo and our Secretary General Adam visited Paris, and you, Jens, went to Denmark, went to Copenhagen to also deliver some messages. So how was the mood in there? Well, in Berlin, the interest was as sky-high as it was in Brussels. I was received in Chancellor's office as well as all the ministries, uh, at least on the vice minister level. I met the, the opposition leader, Friedrich Merz, and, and other dignitaries. I uh, had, believe it or not, 11 events and 13 bilateral meetings there. It's all about Ukraine-Russia. Clearly, the association of China with uh, Russia is noted and negatively. Also, of course, uh, the, the fact that uh, we have seen the uh, Chinese uh, uh, response very strong towards the China strategy, which is unfolding, even though it was only a draft in magazines already, China was scolding the strategy. I think that was ill-conceived. But I think that overall, uh, again, no China bashing, all interest. Uh, but also you can notice the far more uh, stronger American flavor uh, in positions there, that uh, Germany far more tries to align itself with Washington than Brussels does. Uh, I guess that has to do with the fact that Ukraine war is looming over this uh, capital and the country, and, and we rely so much on the Americans uh, in order to push back uh, on, on Russia's invasion. There was a very strong kind of, are we going to have an investment screening outbound from Europe into China? Are we going to have a stronger technology ban? Uh, it's all over the place. Uh, but again, the atmosphere was more accommodating. Clearly, Taiwan was on the uh, forefront of everyone, as particular as we had already now a vice minister traveling to Taipei. So all in all, I think Berlin was um, clearly all in openness, but also not shy of uh, heading for a confrontation, more though than I would say in Brussels. Uh, but maybe that has to do with the fact that Brussels is more in trade and environment than Berlin, which is far more engaged also on security. Carlo, do you want to add something about our trip to Paris? First of all, this is after many years, we was an EU tour where we had the opportunity to have our ambassadors of the chamber in Europe because we have a former uh, president, uh, Davide Cucini in Brussels. 
which helped us to set up some meeting. And as well, in um, Paris, uh, we had uh, the great opportunity to have uh, former Vice President Charlotte Rule, and together with other members of the executive committee in the French community, really helped us to open the door. We went there two days with uh, Adam Dunnett and the Secretary General, with the Charles Rule as well, and we had the opportunity to meet the Director General of the Minister of Finance, and we discussed about the uh, situation of uh, the European banking sector here in uh, China. We explain once again the low percentage of market share that the European International Bank covers here in China, just 1% of all. And we also try to discuss the opportunities that this sector can give here in China. Also, when we had the opportunity to meet uh, the head of the East Asia uh, Department at uh, the Minister of Foreign Affairs, which he got an astonishing uh, view on the Tarifel in his office, this I have to tell you, among other things. And the, the dialogue was really direct, really engaging. And we hope, as Jorg and other colleagues said, that the visit of uh, leaders from Europe will uh, continue. And we hope to see even more CEOs coming here. Jens? Let me just uh, finish off uh, very briefly by saying that I think what we all experienced is an enormous appetite towards hearing from boots on the ground in China. And for those of our listeners that are based in China here, we can only encourage that you go back, you talk to your companies, you talk to stakeholders. People want to know what is going on in China. And it's now perhaps more important than ever that people have a realistic and factual appreciation of what really the situation is on the ground in China, the challenges uh, and opportunities. Right now is the time to go, and uh, at least on my part, I felt it was time very well spent. If we look at the Brussels visit and the visits afterwards to Paris, Copenhagen, Berlin, we will find that in the span of two weeks, we had close to maybe 60 meetings and an overload of information. Now that you all have had some time to process this information, what are your expectations based on the key takeaways of this EU tour on the future of EU-China relations? Well, after about uh, 45 bilateral meetings, 16 events, and six media engagements, I had message soup in my my brain. It's still there, so I try to distill of what it is. I think, really, the personal engagement there is very important. We have emphasized this a couple of times. But also, I think now we're coming back here, we have a much more sharper message to provide to our Chinese interlocutors in order to actually engage. And that's, I think, what's really important now is to tell them that our interlocutors in Europe are willing to engage, have a certain view on China, and the view certainly is also derived from activities from China. We are now asking the Chinese uh, authorities to get the economy going, to open up the door more for European business in China, to uh, be more constructive in tackling climate change and all of the above. I think we have done our messaging now back home in Europe, uh, we have now done the same with our members here. Now it's for us in order to disseminate uh, the possibilities and uh, basically the, the minefields for Chinese interlocutors to understand that we are the bridge and uh, we are definitely well perceived in Europe and hence we should also be listened to here because uh, we care about this country and we care about the relations. 
following up on what Georg was saying, it's uh, also important to underline as our message remark, how important it is for Europe to keep on close business and trade relationship with Taiwan, because as you know, uh, European Union is the main uh, foreign investor in the island. At the same time, we remark how also it's important to pay attention to this issue as a really a red line which can be crossed over from a political point of view with China, because uh, we saw in the past that this one can create a really a lot of tension. So business engagement, but also political attention to this red line. And in the same time, also, it was important to remark also how with our Chinese counterpart, we have in mind them that going back to Europe now require also a new approach, a new strategies. Even, you know, in China, the, the COVID restriction was released on the 7th of December. And we had already, in a few days after, calls for delegation of Chinese, which were going to Europe to scout new investors coming to China. So totally a long time, but also the approach we said to them, you should really engage step by step with Europe, understand that Europe now is different from before, as also China is different. So it requires a time to common understanding, to build up a trust between each other, and then follow up with further cooperation. Thank you, Massimo. Jens? I think one key takeaway point for me, at least compared to three years ago, is that the EU's position on China is beginning to solidify there was a greater alignment that we have seen before. And I think that's very, very positive. China needs to know with whom, with what it's dealing with, and what the EU position really is. It means that conversations perhaps will become more challenging if you're sitting on the other side of the table, and that where previous you can maybe term it as divide and conquer tactics will be harder to execute on, which is also a good thing. But I think it's perhaps also an early wake up call to China uh, to say that, you know, there are European concerns and you need to appreciate that these are concerns and take these uh, seriously in discussions with Europe. Europe is in many ways sitting on the fence right now, is my impression. And China actually has agency. China has means itself to help shape European opinions on what the relationship should be through the way that China chooses to interact with uh, Europe. Thank you, Carlo. As uh, other colleagues, as Vice President and President, we, I participate uh, many times in other uh, EU tour. And at this time, I realized that the priority on China, if China was always top on the agenda, now we have seen uh, that the Ukrainian-Russia war was uh, the first topic that we had engaged, we were discussing. So it's important also to see the development of, uh, the, posi- of the war, of course, and also the position on China on the world that at the moment is not really clear. And uh, indeed, what you were seeing when you were discussing with the European, that after 70 years, we have a war in our territory. And this was discussed as a beginning of uh, our meeting. And this is something definitely we should monitor in the upcoming uh, days and months in order to see also what it will be the development. My last question then, 
is, I hope, the question that many of our listeners will have after going through this podcast, and that is, how can I join the EU tour? So who is eligible to join and what are some of the key responsibilities that come with the perks of this high level of access? Well, who can join? The physically able and the mentally alert. I mean, those that actually are really <laughs> caring about Europe-China uh, relationships. And uh, I think uh, if you care and if you listen to this podcast, uh, get engaged in the chamber, uh, take on the additional duties of maybe working group chair or vice chair, be in the local boards, uh, be on EXCO. Uh, if you have a title with the European Chamber, then actually you can be on the ticket. Uh, I hope that next time uh, there will be a stronger engagement on various levels within the commissions, not just top-end uh, commissioners or DG heads. You all matter in order to make your case on working levels. It might be less spectacular, but it might actually be more impactful. And besides that, you get a feel of where Europe is heading and you are invaluable by popping up in Brussels in order to make them realize what important partner China is. Thanks, York, Jens, Massimo, and Carlo. That's all for today. If you like our podcast, please subscribe to China Dispatches, recommend to your colleagues and friends, and share on social media. Also, we'd love to hear your feedback. You can find contact details in the show notes. This is Esther Cañada Mela from China Dispatches. Thanks for listening.